Well, here we are, the final sermon in our Second Corinthians series. It's been 32 weeks. Did y'all get it all? Or do we need to go back and do it again? No, we, you know, when we do a long series like this, it can be quite the journey, and we can kind of forget, you know, where we're at sometimes. It's just like, oh, he's still in Second Corinthians. But I feel like through this, God has really shown us, you know, what it is to stay kind of focused where he wants us to be. It's easy to get distracted, right? It just is. And one of the things that we, we've learned through, you know, some of the things we've learned through 2 Corinthians is, you know, the fact that there's power and weakness, you know, that, that faith has its own way of boasting, but it's not prideful like the world, that our enemy disguises himself as light, and that we have to learn the, the, the gain the wisdom and the discernment necessary to be able to tell the difference between truth and and lies that, you know, true leaders of God will always point you back to Jesus and, and be concerned for your well-being. You know, Paul has done a lot through this letter to build up the Corinthians and point them in the right direction because they had gotten so off track by listening to false teachers. And it all comes down to kind of a final command that to me, is really one of the defining characteristics of Christianity. This is one of the things that is absolutely essential. It is something that all of us has to learn how to do if we want to be effective in our Christian walk. Now, notice I said effective. Not, you're not losing your salvation. You can be saved, but we can. It is possible for us to be saved and ineffective in our Christian walk. And that means being ineffective and being light and salt to the world. That means ineffective in applying the the truth of God to our lives and moving forward in sanctification. And that is, if we want to be effective, we have to learn how to examine ourselves. Examine yourselves against the word of God, against the truth. And this is kind of the final challenge that Paul puts in front of them before he's coming again for a third time to visit them. And there's a reason that this is where he finishes this letter up because he lets them know, I am coming. So before I get there, examine yourselves. Because Paul this time on this third trip is coming to finally put to bed and put to rest some of this controversy that's been happening. He's finally going to call out the false teachers. He's going to separate out the the, the wheat and the chaff. He's kind of done messing with all of this, and he's finally going to bring it to an end. And it's kind of a warning shot that he's letting them know, you better get your stuff together before I get there. Now, does Paul want to appear to be threatening them? No, he's already said that. He goes, I don't want to appear to be threatening you. I'm not, that's not his goal. But he is letting them know, if this isn't settled by the time I get there, I'm going to settle it. Now, how many of you, you know, when you were younger or parents now, you tell your kids, you know, settle it or I will? What does that mean? That means you don't want me to settle it. 
I'm sure you can come up with a way of settling this that's going to be far gentler and far easier than if I get involved. And if I get involved, you're not going to like it. And that's exactly what Paul is telling them here. He wants to have a joyous visit with them. He wants his third visit to be one of joy and, and, and edification and worshiping God and loving each other and, and for things to be peaceful. But he says, but if, if it's not, it's not. And we'll do what has to be done when I get there. And so listen to what he says here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. And he says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So that, that kind of moves along from sounding very severe to a command to, hey, this really can work out. He starts out kind of severe, and then the tone just kind of gets lighter and lighter as he goes, and he finishes with, hey, God's got this. And, you know, I really believe that's how Paul feels about this. And the reason he can say that, that, hey, God has this, and we're going to get there, is because he knows the truth that Jesus will sanctify his bride. He will. Jesus is going to sanctify his bride. Now, of course, the bride is the, the biblical imagery for the church, for the body of Christ. And one of the things that Jesus is going to do in every situation, in every place, in every time, in every culture, is he's going to sanctify his church. Those who come to him and follow him in faith, it is a process that he is going to engage in with everybody that is going to result in our growth, our edification, our building up, our becoming more Christ-like. Now, how that process plays out is up to us. It can be joyous or it can be severe. Now, I never said it would be easy, but it can be a challenge that is joyous 
It can be one in which we engage the the love of God and and the righteousness of God and and trust in him and have the peace of God reigning in our hearts as we meet those challenges. And God God goes through the work that sometimes is painful, but but it's still a process that leads us to be more Christ-like and to experience more of his love and more of his grace. Or it can be severe because we resist it and God has to break our will along the way. Now, how many in here have ever seen a horse that had to be broken? Is it a peaceful process? How many of you ever seen a high-spirited horse that had to be broken? That's an even less peaceful process. And I've, I've known a, a couple of people in my life that that was their job. They trained horses, and they did that for a living, and they would. They would just talk about it. Every now and then, they would get this high-spirited horse that just it kind of refused to, to break, and they're like, oh, I'll get him. I will definitely get it by the time it's over. And sure enough, they would. But, man, it would be kind of extreme by the end. It was just like this horse is going to listen and it's going to do this. Now, how many of us know that many times that's us? We can get high-spirited with God and we can get stiff-necked, as the Bible says, and we can resist what he's wanting to do. And God's like, it's up to you how much it's got to hurt but I'm going to do this. I am going to sanctify you. You are mine. You trusted in me. I purchased you with my blood. You belong to me, and I am going to sanctify you, whether you agree with it or not. Now, I know that that can sound harsh, right? I mean, that just seems like God's just like taking away our will, and he's just, but we forget what is sanctification, it is the removal of the practice of sin and, and replacement with the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. And, and when we realize what it is we're fighting against, we realize how insane it is. We're like, wait a minute, we're resisting sanctification, which means we're resisting having more of God in our lives. We're resisting His grace. We're resisting His love. All for what? To hold on to our own pride? To hold on to a way of living that didn't work the first time? You see, God's grace is an amazing thing, is it not? God accepts us as we are. And and I cannot overemphasize this. He accepts us as we are. All a person has to do is come to God and say, God, I need you in my life. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and was raised again. God, save me. I put my faith in Jesus and you will be saved. No other precondition other than that you have faith, that you ask and you believe. God doesn't say, clean up your life first. He doesn't say, hey, go complete this program and then come to me, and if you were good enough at it, I'll accept you. He accepts us as we are. And that is amazing. And his grace is so amazing is that when he receives us as we are, he never leaves us as we are. He accepts us to grow us. He comes into our life and he starts the process of sanctification immediately. And he starts changing our heart and he starts changing our mind. And he starts growing us and turning us into a new creation. Which means over time, we got to let go of old ways of thinking. We got to let go of old ways of living. We got to let go of old ways of of understanding the world. And we got to replace it with the truth of God. And this is a process 
that God is going to engage in every time with a person who comes to him. And so one of the things I want us to grab onto is that Jesus never receives someone and then leaves them alone. God's grace is always active. It is not passive. God's grace is active. Jesus himself said, my father work, continues to work and has never stopped working. What does that mean? That means he's building his kingdom. That means he is constantly working in your life, in your heart, in your mind to turn you into the person he recreated you to be in salvation. The new creation, that new name we talked about a couple weeks ago. He's recreating you in that image. And none of this is dependent upon our strength, our resolve, or our ability. God's grace is based in God's unlimited power and flows from his never-ending love. It is always active in our lives. But that does not mean that God will allow his grace to be endlessly abused. God expects his people to be faithful and continued refusal to repent when called to it will lead God to use his power to move us down the path of sanctification with our permission or not. Now, I know some of you in here know what I'm talking about. Some have had that, that stiff neck at times. We all do it at different times where we just think this is, this is it, this is it, I'm not going to move, and God just starts to drag you. <laughs> and, and he just keeps pulling and keeps pulling. We're like, God, why are you being so harsh? And God says, why are you being so stubborn? And then we say, I'm not being stubborn. Don't tell me I'm stubborn. And God keeps pulling us until a moment finally happens that we realize what he's pulling us into is his love. What he's getting us to let go of is a life that doesn't work. A way of thinking that doesn't work. That hurts more than it heals. And so... For Paul here in Corinth, the call to repentance has gone from a simple call to, hey, y'all should stop doing that. Don't do that. That's bad. In 1 Corinthians, you can read all through the different sins that were going on in Corinth, and there were plenty. And he's telling them, hey, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. Don't do that, okay? And here's why. And, and he's, he teaches them, and he's very gentle in teaching them. He doesn't condemn people, but he says, hey, you do have to deal with this, though. You've got to do this. And then... You know, he visits them again, and they keep getting hung up on it. And notice how Paul's tone has now shifted. He has gone from a simple call to repentance to a warning about what's going to happen if they continue forward. See, our God is patient, but he is not indefinitely unlimited patience. You know, God's patience does have limits. It does. Now, we don't know what those are, but there are times when God finally says, that's enough. Read through the Old Testament. You'll see it. Now, it took generations sometimes. Sometimes we can get so kind of focused on ourselves, we forget God thinks in generations. He thinks, you know, very, very long term, you know, eternal, kind of eternity-wise. But there are times in the Old Testament when God finally says, all right, that's it. I've given you chance after chance after chance after chance after chance, and that's it. I'm done. Now it's time for something to happen. 
I've been patient. I will be patient no longer. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on that end of things. I don't ever want God to be like, all right, you want it. Here you go. Oh, you want to resist? I don't want that in my life. And that is what is called, in, in many ways, the fear of God. I, I want to be afraid of God enough that I don't want to upset him, that I don't want to test his patience. Now, do I test his patience? Absolutely, because I'm a human. I, I'm fallible. I'm sinful. It, it, I need grace every single day. But I don't want to ever get to the point where I just think, oh, yeah, God, you know, he's patient. Because it's about that time that his patience is about to run out when we start taking it for granted. And so this goes to a warning. Listen to this again. In verse 2, he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others. So now he's including the whole church. Because he has started out telling certain groups of people that they needed to stop. But the entire church has tolerated it long enough that now he's like, everybody's in on this now. (laughs) Everybody. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Now, he keeps going to the power of God. What is he saying? He's saying that that power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is working to sanctify you. Isn't that exciting? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father on high is the exact same power that is at work in your life. And when we resist it, Think of it in terms of Christ resisting resurrection. It doesn't make sense, does it? We're like, wait, why would he resist resurrection? That's a ridiculous thought. He's bringing them back to life. Yeah, and he's bringing you back to life in sanctification. And when we resist the work of God, that's exactly what happens. We resist the life that he is bringing into us. And so Paul issues this warning to everybody, because at this point, the entire church is responsible for failing to deal with the problem in their midst. And I love this, because look how Paul writes this. He doesn't pick out just a few leaders or a few bad apples. He puts them all together as the body of Christ. Do we think of ourselves like that within the body of Christ? All equals, all equally responsible to God for our behavior and our sanctification within the body of Christ? Do I look at myself as a part of the body of Christ that I'm responsible for you and you're responsible for me and together we serve God? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing if we saw that happen in churches all across our land? That we drew our identity not from our leaders or not from uh, our, our members, but from the head, Jesus Christ, and Him alone? That's what He is calling us to do. And so, Paul tells them, he's letting them know, look, God is going to do this, okay? God is going to sanctify his church. And we either agree with it and and participate and cooperate with what God is doing within us, 
or we resist it, and God does it anyway. And we miss the blessing of what it is to walk in faith and be blessed by the journey that we're on. Because God's going to get us there one way or the other. And so what Paul, as he lays down that, you know, basically this is going to happen, he tells them, examine yourselves. See, he's telling them to engage in this process personally, willingly, themselves before he gets there. So he doesn't have to force the issue when he's there. And what we learn through this, and this is so important for this entire series, if you don't get anything else, grab hold of this. Self-reflection is a spiritual discipline. Self-reflection is a spiritual discipline. When we read Scripture, do we read it to just gain information? Is it like reading a novel that, hey, I read that, it was interesting. You know, I once heard an evangelist say, we don't read the Bible to finish it, we read the Bible to change. And when we read and spend time with God, when we worship and we lift our hands up to God, are we seeking His Spirit and His will for our lives on a continual basis? When I read the Word of God, do I look in it and say, God, what is it you're telling me to do now? What truth are you relaying to my life now? Now, if we're not reading it, that obviously can't happen. So the first thing is we've got to be spending time with the Word of God, but not in a legalistic sense of, okay, well, I, you know, I've got to read a little bit today. Okay, check the box. I'm done. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about do we look into it for the truth that God is going to use that we're going to be able to look then in our own heart and say, you know what, the Word of God says this, and my heart says this, I'm wrong, and I need to change. Because that process right there is one of the greatest treasures of the Christian faith that we can have. You know why? Because that process is impossible without the help of the Holy Spirit. It is impossible. So listen again to what Paul says in verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, he said it twice right there. What have we learned about Paul? When he really wants us to understand something, he'll repeat himself. And he just said, examine and test yourselves twice in, in three sentences. He says, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Paul knows what he's speaking about here. And his command is to examine themselves against the truth that he has given them. Are you in the faith or not? Notice he didn't say examine yourself as to whether or not you've sinned at all. And everything better be completely figured out by the time I get there. What does he say? He says are you in the faith? Are you walking with Jesus? Now, how do we know whether we're doing that or not? Because some people say, well, just look inside, you know, listen to your heart. You'll know. Now, what does Jeremiah tell us about the human heart? It is deceitful above all things. Don't trust yourself. Trust the word of God. And weigh your heart against the truth of God and see where you come out. Because the ability to examine oneself against the truth of Scripture and be honest is a part of this whole test of faith. It is a part of the faith that is indispensable. 
If we are trusting God in his ways, then we'll accept his word on matters of sin and righteousness. Amen? If we're going to claim the name of Jesus Christ, then what Jesus says is sin has to be sin. What he describes as righteousness, we have to accept as righteousness. We don't get to redefine it as we see fit. We let him set the standard, and then we strive towards holiness. We strive to meet it. And where we fail, we turn to him and say, God, I need your help. God, I confess I'm coming in underneath, and I I need your help, and I confess this to you, and and I cry out for your help. Sanctify me, God, and, and help me and lead me. And then we make the adjustments God tells us to make. Now, this is not a path that leads to perfection, but it is a path that keeps us in the faith. It keeps us walking with him. It keeps us humble and makes us effective in our walk rather than being ineffective. And being effective in our Christianity means what? It means I'm being sanctified. I'm contributing to the sanctification of those around me. I'm adding to the kingdom of God by by reaching out and evangelizing others in some way. I'm serving the kingdom of God. I'm building the kingdom of God. It means that we become producers in the kingdom of God rather than consumers. And it starts with our own willingness to examine ourselves against the truth of Scripture. But there are two things about this that that really trip people up. And that is, what is the Christian faith about? We've made it so much in our modern times about life enhancement and life improvement. You need Jesus to be happy. Can a person be happy in this world without Jesus? Yeah, they can. Give a person a billion dollars and let them do whatever they want. They'll find a form of happiness. Now, I didn't say they'd have joy. I didn't say they'd have eternal joy and that the whole would be filled that is made specifically for God and that they would have fulfillment, but they can have distraction that would be worldly happiness. They can have that. And if we make following Jesus about worldly happiness, then we're going to compete with the world on its terms. But Jesus didn't die so that we could be happy. He died so that we could be holy and have eternal life with him in heaven and have eternal joy and eternal peace and eternal hope with him. You see, the greatest problem we have is that we are sinful. It's not that we're unhappy. The greatest problem we have is not that life is hard. It's that life is broken. It's that we're dead spiritually. And if we are dead spiritually, then we can't examine ourselves against the faith. It is only through the life-giving Spirit of God that we're able to even recognize the truth of God and strive towards it. And so, the first thing we have to do is not make it about ourselves, but about the kingdom of God. About what He has done for us. And this is what Jesus meant in Luke 9.23. says, if anyone would come after me... Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What is testing yourself and examining yourself is all about? What it's all about is denying ourselves. I can convince myself I'm okay all day long, right? Have I gained anything? 
Or I can go to the word of God and see the truth displayed and say, God, open my eyes to the truth and see where I'm falling short and say, God, I want to strive for that holiness. Give me your spirit. God, forgive me, empower me, teach me, change me so that I can strive for that holiness that you want me to have. I have to deny myself at the very outset of that for it to happen. If I go to the word of God to simply confirm that I'm a good person, I'm not denying myself. What am I doing? I'm pulling it down to my level and saying, here, God, make me feel better. Make me feel good. Whereas if I truly examine myself as a spiritual discipline, I look at the standard and I'm honest about I'm not meeting it here. And if I'm not meeting it, then I had to deny my own ego. I had to deny my own pride and admit it. And if I'm loving Jesus and I'm walking with him, through that examination, I'll then make changes to my life to try to meet that standard, to do it as best I can. And that's what Jesus said in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it starts with us denying ourselves. And then where does it go? It goes towards us doing what he tells us to do, not what we feel we want to do. We are guided by the truth and not our own mind, not our own feelings. And the test that he is talking about now is can we engage in that process? It is not measuring who has more sin in their life. Let me say that again. This is not about measuring who has more sin in their life. You know why? Because we are all sinful and we all need forgiveness. And that's the end of the story. And we have to accept that about ourselves. And if we can't accept that about ourselves and that we need grace, then it is evidence that we're not in the faith. And here's how I know that. Only the Holy Spirit can enlighten us to the truth of God. I can't get there on my own. And if I can't take the truth of God and apply it to my heart, but rather all I do is spend my time justifying my life as okay, then it is evidence I am not in Christ. Because Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, listen to this. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles, the unsaved, do. In what? In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What he's saying is that the lost mind cannot bring itself into agreement with the word of God. In fact, it, it won't even try. It will ignore it. And so Paul is not telling them, you better make sure nobody is struggling at all, and there better not be any sin when I get there, or I'm cracking skulls. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, if you've gotten off track with God, examine yourself, get in the faith, and you start walking with him before I get there, and we'll deal with all this when I get there in a joyful way rather than a painful way where I'm going to have to show you the severity of God's holiness. The mind that is in darkness is literally incapable of the kind of self-examination Paul talks about. And that's why he says, or do you not know that Christ lives within you unless you fail the test? 
You see, he's throwing one last thing down to him before he comes, saying, look, just, just do your best to walk with God and, and take the truth of God, apply it to your heart, and that'll be enough. Just examine, are you walking with him? Because any of us, if there's something out of place and we go to God in genuine faith, we're like, okay, God, what's wrong with me? He'll show us, not in condemnation, but he will definitely point us in a direction and say, hey, do this. He'll convict us. Hey, you need to spend more time in the Word. Hey, you should, you should focus on your prayer life more. Hey, you really should fellowship with other Christians a little bit more. You're reading Scripture and you're praying, but, man, you don't talk to anyone. God will definitely do that for all of His people repeatedly because that's the call in Scripture. That's what He wants to do. And so Paul says, just re-engage in this as it's going. And so... The question goes to us, are we following Jesus or are we following some creation, something of our own mind? Are you born again? See, I would be remiss as a pastor and a spiritual leader if I didn't ask you that right now. Are you born again? Are you in the faith? Now, I didn't ask if you go to church regularly. I didn't ask if you knew your Bible. I said, are you born again? If you stood before the judgment seat of Christ right now, what would you say? And if your answer starts with anything, like, well, I tried, you've not, you're looking in the wrong place, my friend. And I mean that. If your response to God saying, why should I let you in heaven, begins at all with your actions, You're in a bad, bad place. You know what the Bible says about your actions? They stink. The Bible says all our righteousness are like filthy rags before God. So there isn't a soul on this earth other than Jesus Christ who could stand before God and say, yes, you should let me into heaven because I'm a good person. There isn't a single one of us can say that. And yet, you ask people, just ask people, I I challenge you, go through your week and ask people, hey, do you think you'll go to heaven? I know it seems like a weird conversation, but then ask why. And they're going to say, well, because I try to be a good person. Guess what? You're not a good person. Okay, and I don't mean that to insult anybody. I'm just saying, according to God's standards, none of us is good. And if we're not going to get in on our goodness, then how are we going to get into heaven? We have to be born again by faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And we believe in him because he was resurrected and he is the power of God unto salvation. And there is no other name by which men must be saved. And so, my answer, if I'm standing before God and he says, why should I let you in heaven? I'm going to say, you shouldn't. But I believe in your son and he died in my place and I'm with him. You talk to him. Don't talk to me. Because I got nothing to say. I got nothing to offer. But he told me he paid my debt. So you take it up with him. See, there's a huge difference there in those answers. I know I bring nothing to the table. And so I have to ask you, are you born again? Can you say those things that your faith is genuinely in Jesus Christ And he is the reason that your eternity is safe, not your own works and actions.
Are you in the faith? Because Paul calls them to answer these questions before he gets there. Because if they answer them honestly, he can get there and they'll, what will they be doing? They'll be coming to him and like, hey, God's telling me this and God's telling me I need to repent here. And he's going to be like, this is awesome. Y'all are listening to God. This is great. Now let me help you do that. Let me help you know the things of God. And their visit can be a joyous one. Even in repentance, joy will be there. If they're resistant to it, Paul's going to have to come in and show them, hey, you're resisting God. Don't tell me I'm resisting God. No, you're resisting God. And here's how I know it. And he's going to have to prove it to them, and there's going to be a fight. And Paul says, I'm up for that fight. I don't want to have that fight, but if we have to, I will. I will do that. And what we can then learn from this is if we are, if we are there, then we ourselves can learn to treasure the faith itself because it enables us to go through this process with joy. That it is a process of bringing life into our lives and not taking it from us. Do you know that everything God does, He does because He loves you? Everything God does in your life is designed. Even if it's Satan coming against you, it had to get past God and God is going to use it somehow to bring you closer to Him. Now, we may not understand that in the moment, and we may not even understand it in this lifetime, but when we get to heaven and we see God's plan, we're going to go like, wow, everything you did, you did out of love. Everything you did was absolutely perfect, and you used even the enemy's attacks, even his most pernicious, foul attacks, you used them, turned it around against him, and used it to further your kingdom. That's what he does. And so I want you to look very quickly at what Paul's goals and his requests and his commands for the Corinthians are at the end of this book. Verse 9, he says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Let's think about for a moment, what is it that Paul wants out of them? He wants restoration, repentance, gentleness, comfort, unity, and peace. That's a pretty good list, right? Now, shouldn't that be what we want for ourselves as well? That is, that's what the whole world is searching for, and it's what's available in Jesus Christ. These are the very treasures provided within the body of Christ by the salvation that comes through Christ alone. And Paul reminds them of that. He says, your restoration is what I pray for. He wants them desperately walking with God so that they can have this peace so that they can agree with each other, they can live in harmony together, they can encourage each other. It breaks his heart that they're fighting with each other the way that they are. And he says, I want you to agree with each other. But agree on the right things. Agree in Christ. Listen to him. What Paul has been doing through this whole book is leading them to experience the true treasures of the Christian faith. The abundant life offered by Christ.
And at the end of the day, we have much to praise God about and much for which we can be thankful. Amen. When we know what God has done for us, it leads to gratitude. It leads to unity. In Christ, we are new creation. In Christ, we are forgiven. We are promised eternal life. And in this, we are called to love and build each other up until that day. And so today, like the Apostle Paul, I call on you to examine yourselves as to whether or not you're in the faith. I can't tell you whether you're in Christ. Only you can do that. Only you can examine yourself against the truth of Scripture and strive towards knowing Him. But when you do that, and you pass the test because you're willing to deny yourself and obey, that's where the the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, that's where that shows up. That's where God's sanctification takes root and you become that new person who create, recreated you to be in Christ. That's where we find the treasures of the faith. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray, Lord, for each person in here right now, God, myself, everybody here, as the body of Christ, God, I pray you lead us in that sanctification process, God, where you guide us to new life. God, I pray if there are any in here who do not know you, who have not been born again, God, I pray that you speak to their hearts and call them to you. Lead them, God, to call out to you in faith, to put their hope and trust in your cross, in your resurrection, in your perfect life you live for them. God, wherever any have maybe been stiff-necked, where, where any have resisted your sanctification, God, I pray that you would renew that call, soften our hearts, and help us to follow you without that resistance, trusting you through the difficulties. And God, I pray that, as Paul said, that we would aim for restoration, that we would love one another through this process. We would not look for fault, we would look for grace. We would not give in to despair, but we would trust in the hope of the gospel, the hope given by your son, Jesus Christ. Lead us, God, to glorify you, to serve your kingdom. Use us to grow your kingdom, to reach people with the good news that they too can be free and have life. God, lead us to treasure the faith and experience the treasures of the faith. God, we want everything that you have for us. God, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.